0: This is the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. With a passion for the big picture and a top down view of macroeconomics, this week we speak with Zoe Wallace, Chief Economist at Deloitte. This broad ranging and thought provoking discussion with Zoe covers the outlook for the New Zealand economy, along with what is needed to encourage more women into the finance sector. Before joining Deloitte, Zoe was Chief Economist at Kiwi Bank a Director for the CFA Society NZ and Financial Market and Risk Analysis at the Reserve Bank. We are sorry if New Zealand will achieve a soft landing. Why is it that the Reserve Bank's actions take time to have impact and why consumers' expectations affect inflation? What is the Reserve Bank's dual mandate? And with so much local and international uncertainty, is she optimistic for the future?
1: Hello and welcome to the Monday Call. I'm Stefan Clark, Chief Client Officer at NZ Funds, and together with me, I've got James Gregor, Chief Investment Officer. Today we're joined by Zoe Wallace, Chief Economist at Deloitte. Before joining Deloitte, Zoe had an impressive career working internationally in New Zealand in roles such as the Chief Economist at KiwiBank, Director for the CFA Society of New Zealand, being responsible for leading women in finance, and a Portfolio Manager at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. It's really great to have you here Zoe and um we're we're very much looking forward to uh, getting your take on the economy and where things are going but before we kick into that it would be you know wonderful if you'd talk us through your journey so far how you find yourself at Deloitte and then what it is about economics that you love so much Yeah
2: sure thing so I started my career journey at the Reserve Bank as a graduate so I think uh, when you sort of leave university with an economics degree, the two main places that people end up tend to be the Reserve Bank and the Treasury. And I was lucky enough to end up at the Reserve Bank, which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, it was a fascinating time, actually, and i probably t- showing my age a little bit. But when I joined, I think within the first year, basically, the global financial crisis hit and things got really, really interesting. And I was actually based, rather than the economic side, in the financial markets team and actually doing financial market research. And I remember... Went on holiday, while I was on holiday, Lehman Brothers happened, came back, straight into a new role doing market research, and it's interesting, you learn all these very theoretical models at university about how the economy should work, and then you live through a financial crisis and realize that a lot of those go out the window, and um, actually a lot of it's down to human behavior and risk aversion and fear to some extent. Um, in terms of the how markets reacted and what the sort of contagion effect from Lehman Brothers really um, spilled over into uh, lots of other areas. So that was a really fascinating few years baptism by fire. Uh, I then headed off on the traditional you know UK OE thing uh, and ended up doing a couple of contract roles still in financial services over there before coming back to portfolio management role at the Reserve Bank again. Um then an opportunity came up to do some more bread and butter economics and actually be a sort of bank economist at Kiwi Bank. So I joined that team and spent about six or seven years of my career at Kiwi Bank, which was a fantastic experience. Really cool um I guess social mandate as well in terms of what Kiwi Bank was set up to do um, and the organisation and how it operated. Um, and ended up sort of leading the economics team there for a few years, which was great. So doing chief economist role there, which was quite similar to what I'm doing. At Deloitte now, um, but in the interim, I actually had two years running their payments and transactions portfolio as well. So heading up that sort of customer strategy and product division of, their, um, of Kiwi Bank, which was fascinating too.
1: So not just the theoretical, but the practical, right in there yeah, uh, yeah, too. Yeah, which is really
2: interesting. It's
1: Great. So, so in your your current role, you you do client facing work as well as forecasting and. Um, that that side of things what 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 particular sort of, are there particular sectors you focus on or particular clients you um you, you know you 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 tackle problems for
2: yeah absolutely so we we have a real mix so private and public sector clients we're based in wellington so quite close to government side of things as well um but we started off as a relatively small economics team about five or six years ago and we've been growing out our base ever since then Um, And so it's a real range of work, as I think you end up doing a lot in consulting, really interesting stuff um, that comes along. Uh, So lots of sort of macroeconomic forecasting, quite a lot of microeconomics work as well. Um, And thinking about things like cost-benefit analysis, uh, work for different business cases and projects. Um, One really interesting piece that the team did recently was around uncertainty outlooks, And so... I think you can appreciate at the moment the world's becoming a lot more uncertain from an economy point of view. That has relatively large fall effects to what happens here in New Zealand. And so actually thinking about, well, okay, it's fine having a central view and a central scenario, but what, what does the range uh, look outside of that central scenario? What might be a high, you know, positive upside surprise? What might be a nasty negative downside shock? And what would that mean for different businesses and their balance sheets and how they think about their strategic outlook and adapting to that different environment? So. That's, I think, a really interesting piece at the moment, given just how uncertain the economic environment is. There's a real, um, a real demand for that type of analysis and understanding and thinking a bit more strategically in terms of your business planning.
1: Fantastic. We will launch into a, the uncertainty element soon, I'm sure. But before we go there, um, I, I, two things. I guess, obviously, you've been in economics for a, a, a number of years now. What was it that drew you to the subject matter in the first instance and you know, there aren't oh, I hate to say and it will be a good segue to the next topic at a second but there aren't that many women in senior roles in economics in New Zealand and so it's obviously you know taken you there what was what where did well, you know where did the love for it come from?
2: Yeah it's a it's a good question and I, I wish I had a more very thought through you know 10-year career plan but um, I, at school I was doing largely science and math subjects Um, but quite enjoyed English, thought maybe I'd do law, had to pick up a final year subject because I dropped a couple of um, different ones and picked up economics and then just thought this is really cool, this is a really interesting business, real world application using some of those maths and other skill sets um, to analyse different problems and different ways of thinking and it just kind of felt like it touched on everything, you know. And part of the reason I'm drawn to macroeconomics is I love that big picture, top down view. So thinking about actually, from the sort of balcony, how is this going to impact things? And how does that impact different businesses' outlooks? Um, What does it mean for the consumer? You know, at the moment, we can probably come back to this, but you think about cost of living crisis and what inflation numbers actually mean for your people on the street. and so, yeah, it just really appealed from that point of view. And so I ditched the idea of doing law and um, picked up economics at university and kind of went from
3: there. Zoe, when you think about your macroeconomics journey and when you think about some of the great economists out there, lots of econom- economists end up sort of coming down on one view or, or another or, or multiple views. You know, you can be a Keynesian, or you can be a neoclassical. Do you, is that how you think about things or, or do, you, do is yours more um, I guess like, like, like a, like a good journalist, you're sort of open-minded to everything and that the research will take you down either way. How, how do you think about that? Because you get some really real yeah. in a good way, opinionated economists, but you also get, you know, you also, um, in your role, I guess that's quite hard to have.
2: Yeah. It's, uh, interesting. I haven't actually thought about what sort of economist, um, I type I am, but I think, um, I probably would say the latter is that I don't have a strong sort of everything's right this way and you must think about things in this model. Um, what I do think is really interesting, and I sort of alluded to this before, is that you need to think about in economy, economics in the context of people and how people actually behave. Um, so I do really love that behavioural finance, the Richard Thaler, um, the nudge, those sort of, that school of economics is that actually, okay, there's a model about how things should work if everyone was rational, but actually, people aren't rational, people make silly decisions or things that might seem to be conflict with what they've said previously all the time. Uh, so thinking about actually from a real world point of view. Um, okay, what are the contagion effects if you implement that policy versus this policy? Um, what are the flow and effects? How might people not act in the way you expect? And I think, you know, even doing a sort of customer product facing role. You think you know what might work but you actually need to go and road test that and actually see what demand is for a product or how customers might actually end up using these different offerings that you have and um thinking through the sort of ramifications of it and road testing and really trying to embed economics in the real world so yes yeah, um, it's
3: uh, i mean that's exactly the same obviously i didn't do or well, not obviously i didn't do economics um, which i'm which i'm always uh, very quick to point out but when you when you're studying finance there's one thing sitting in a room exactly and, and learning about how the world should work and in, in your DCF valuation of some company and its long-term cash flows. But in reality, a lot of uh, share prices are affected by human behavior and management teams and uh, politicians and, and that sort wins. of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Reddit, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> another Reddit post moved Google, you know, $20 billion or something. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> Cole, you've also been a big advocate for women in finance and that part of that was your role with um, CFA Society of New Zealand and I thought it might be a good just a little bit of a um, stock take we, we pulled some numbers together. I think currently, based on the data, we've got something like just short of 26% of directors on private company boards are women and 29% of NZX 50 directors are women and meanwhile, so that, you know, it's probably improving, but um, it's not a huge number. Nearly a fifth of companies on the NZX have no female directors. And um, and so that sounds pretty dire. But on the other hand, um, uh, in public sector boards and committees, apparently 53% um, of directors and committee members are now women, according to the Minister for Women, um, Jan uh, Tinetti. So how have you thought about, I guess, um, advocating for this in – the broader community and encouraging um participation and and and, and as, as part of your role at, at the cfa
2: yeah it's an interesting one and when we started thinking about it from the cfa point of view it was kind of a question about it at what point down um the sort of career spectrum you ended up needing to intervene and what we found was that often the problem was people leaving school um, hadn't done enough you know hadn't picked math subjects or hadn't picked um the right things to then get them on the path. So even if they were doing a commerce degree, they might not have enough maths to do an econometrics paper, for example. Um, and so it was almost, you needed to go right back to school age and I think, you know, there's some great programs happening, um, you know, back around financial literacy and understanding being one of them um, and Kiwi Bank partners with them to help support that. And then the other piece is just thinking about, okay, how do you get more female studying STEM subjects basically? Um, because I think that's a natural flow on to being you know to a career in finance from some point of view. So if you look at the stats at uni around commerce, um, women in commerce, they actually look pretty good. But when you deep dive into which streams of commerce those um, those females are taking, that's when you start to see the, the discrepancies arise and you don't see 50-50 splits in subjects like finance or economics. It is getting better, and I think it has improved since I went through. Um but it's definitely still a work in progress. And I, I think, you know, part of it's role modelling. We've got some great senior female economists now in New Zealand. You know, Sharon Zollman at ANZ. Um, there's more senior um, CEOs um, on the bank boards now. I'm sorry, bank leadership now as well. Um, so that's been a great thing to see in terms of just that role modelling piece. Um, but I do agree boards is still an area where we we need to see more change Um And it it is happening, but it does feel slow, right? It's it's also that pipeline as well. You need more women in senior positions, getting the right experience to then move into board leadership roles. Um, I don't think there's a quick fix, but I think, you know, role modelling does play a really huge part in it. But then on the flip side, if you look at things like accounting and law, which used to be male-dominated, hugely male-dominated, 20 years ago, you now see more female graduates come through law. um, And accounting is, I think, about 50-50 nowadays as well.
1: I I, I went through law school and I think it was 60 in my contract class the numbers were done over it was 63% females and 30 whatever the difference is 37% males and um, so I was severely outnumbered in that one but um, Mm -hmm. you know that's it's it's a very small group of people really
2: yeah I mean yeah laws actually started to flip the opposite direction you've got more females than males right yeah Um, so you know those industries have seen a huge amount of change and that's really positive. But obviously, it's still taking some time, I think, to come through and you look at, you know, senior partners at law firms, general counsels. Um, so it's a slow burn. I think we're heading in the right direction, but we've got to think about, particularly capturing, them, capturing people at a younger age and just making it clear what your options are as well. I think at school, it's really hard for school leaders to see defined careers. And there's so many roles you don't understand or don't hear about or don't know about until you get out into the workforce and therefore, um, having the foresight or having the insight to be able to say, actually, that looks really cool and I'd be interested in doing that.
1: How do I get there? Yeah. Cool. So. Well, I mean, work to be done, but hopefully it is heading in the right direction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, the world faces a wide range of economic headwinds currently, and we um, uncertainty on many fronts. Uh, I guess at a really top level, do you, what, what's your view do you, on, on, on us achieving a soft landing? so to speak. And... Great question.
2: So still our central view is that New Zealand would probably avoid certainly a nasty recession, possible technical recession. You might see two quarters of negative growth, but pretty mild. Um, our, our core view is still that we avoid that and that we sort of engineer a softish landing in the next couple of years. Um, but that's say a 60% central scenario rather than anything higher. So. I think if you look at the balance of risks, they're definitely to the downside at the moment, Um, particularly around the global growth outlook and um, the impact of negative shocks from geopolitics that we've seen come into play over the last few years. How far will central banks tighten and how quickly will they be able to respond once they see inflation coming off? Because the tricky thing about monetary policy, right, is it operates with a lag. So we've had a huge amount of tightening from almost every single global central bank. but that takes time to come through. And you're seeing this in New Zealand at the moment, right, is we started tightening up just over a year ago. We've gone from 0.25 to 3.5. We expect another 75 basis points at the November meeting next week from the Reserve Bank. So that's taking you to 4.25. That's 400 basis points of tightening in quite a short timeframe. People are on one to two year fixed mortgages. People starting to roll off, doubling their interest rate, right? So. It, it does take time to feed through, but we're expecting it to start really hitting. And it's interesting when you look at, you know, the cost of living and consumer spending. Consumer spending's actually been holding up relatively well to date, but you can start to see the mix of that's really changing. So people aren't going and splurging on new cars and TVs and lots of DIY anymore. People are actually ending up spending more money at the supermarket and the petrol pump.
3: So. When you think about um, the choices of the Reserve Bank, I guess you got sort of a view of it when you're working for them with them but i I guess is from this point forward, there's two two tracks i can go you can or any central bank not just the reserve bank of new zealand it's it's do you continue to be increasing rates aggressively uh because there might be a lag effect but at the moment inflation's still high and employment's still really low and so it's hard to get it down um but but you might overdo it and in which case you know you potentially cause, a, cause an, a a recession because of it. But then I guess you can flip the other way and start reducing. Or the other one is to, to pause a bit and see how it plays out. I guess the risk there is that you haven't actually controlled it and then you're playing catch up again. Do, do, do you think about those two, um, I guess, courses of action and go one's worse than the other? Or are they both difficult and both have different effects or because I, I guess that's the choice that all central banks have at the moment they either see if the lag effect does come through and actually they've done enough or they keep going because they don't want to pay catch up later when they realize that perhaps they're wrong and inflation is still pretty stubborn even though we're at 325 with a 75 base point raise perhaps next next week
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing that's been quite interesting to watch here, and there's two factors that the Reserve Bank's probably quite concerned about. So one is wage growth, and that's really accelerating at the moment. Um, The other is inflation expectations. Um, And so those two things, once they become quite embedded, they become quite hard to shift. Um, So inflation expectations in the latest Reserve Bank survey, you had two-year inflation expectations at three point six two. So basically, those people surveyed think that in two years' time, the Reserve Bank still won't have got inflation back within its target range. Um, And I guess this starts to become a little bit of a credibility question for the Reserve Bank in that, is do people believe that it will be able to get inflation back to its target? Because if people don't believe that, then you start to expect prices will continue to move up for some time. And then if you expect prices to continue moving higher, well, I'm more likely to put my shop price up, I'm more likely to grant people wage increases. Um, and therefore that becomes embedded in inflation. So the longer that your expectations remain elevated, the longer inflation is likely to last and the stickier that it is. Um, Same thing with wages, right? So if wage growth continues to go up, firms are going to have to raise their prices in response to that because otherwise you're just eating into your margin. Um, And if people are facing a higher cost of goods, then you're more likely to demand a pay rise to compensate for that and therefore you're putting more pressure back on wages. So... Those two think dynamics are really probably what's keeping the Reserve Bank up at night in my, at night in my mind, um, and that's what they really want to get on top of. So until we really st- start to see those factors cool, um, I think they've probably got a little bit further to go in terms of hiking interest rates. What I do think though, and you know, monetary policy is a tricky instrument because it operates with a lag, but it also, what they're trying to do is impact the demand side of the New Zealand economy, right? So you're trying to raise interest rates to a point but actually things start to cool. And so I think that is going to be starting to be evidenced by the time we get into the new year. And the Reserve Bank's um, in a bit of a different position to others, such as the RBAs. RBAs, Reserve Bank Australia, has taken a much more dovish stance recently, so they've they've hiked rates quite aggressively up until this point. But they're now sort of um, a bit more cautious about how far they want to go from here um, and very much in a wait-and-see mode. But they have... Um, a few more meetings a year than we do and so we've got a November NPS and then we're not meeting again and don't have another OCR decision until February next year it's quite a long time between drinks actually for a central bank Um, and so what I expect is they'll they'll hike properly aggressively so hike 75 basis points this quarter or this month but by the time we come back to February I think things will be evidencing the fact that those interest rates are starting to have a negative impact on consumer spending, business demand, business investment And that things are starting to cool and that will be taking some
3: of the heat out of inflation that's really fascinating about that meeting because i guess that either they have to do some not emergency but some out of cycle raises if things really get out of control or or go harder now at this at this increase next next week and and to sort of tie them over (laughs) until after christmas
2: yeah i mean i I guess there's an outside risk they go 100 it's not I don't think it's very likely and it's not my central view. I think also because they'll be feeling like they're getting towards the end of their hiking cycle. So if you think about where they were forecasting in the middle year, a lot of water has gone under the bridge since their August monetary policy statement. Um, they were talking about a OCR peak of just above four. So we're talking about them taking the OCR to 4.25 this month. Um, so the closer you get to kind of where your expected peak is, the more I would expect them to be a little bit more cautious about quite how rapidly they're increasing interest rates, right? um and starting to tail things off so we our house viewers you probably see a peak in the ocr of 4.75 in sort of early to mid next year um and i think that's possibly at that point going to be delivered in maybe one more 50 basis point hike or 225 basis points just depending on how economic data is looking at the start of next year
1: Uh, it would i mean the effectiveness of it would depend on timing with which people roll over their mortgages, and I assume it's not completely linear and, and there'll be a curve to it um, through the year. And so, um,
0: you know, and, and, and the other,
1: I guess, key component to it, of course, is that the unemployment rate seems to not be budging. So, uh, yeah, uh, I guess 75 basis points, I don't know if that's enough, right? Like...
3: To put it, To put it bluntly, Zoe, yeah. do we have to see unemployment increase in order for wage growth to decrease and and that's no one what no politician wants to say that openly but essentially we do don't we we have to see unemployment rate go up
2: yeah look i think when you think about the reserve bank i mean technically they've got a dual mandate right and it's not just unemployment that they specifically target but it is a range of labor market measures and everything is pointing to the labor market being overheated at the moment you could say um If you think about the natural rate of unemployment, so kind of whereabouts they're aiming for, it's somewhere in the realm or estimated to be 4 to 4.5%, so we're at 3.3%. So obviously that's quite a lot lower than kind of your natural rate. So I think if you're thinking about running your economy at not too hot and not too cold, which is what the Reserve Bank's actually ideally trying to do, um, a, a slightly higher unemployment rate would be consistent with that. Um, and taking some of that wage pressure out of the economy. How we get there is probably an interesting question. So there's a couple of channels, right? So partly what's causing really tight labor market at the moment is the fact that we haven't had any immigration for the last two years, right? So you've just got a shortage of people. We had a net loss of 11,000 people over the last year. Um, So actually our population's um, losing people from that point of view. And that means that your labor force is actually getting really constrained. Um, As immigration starts to turn around and pick up again, Hopefully that will help meet some of the the skill shortages that we're seeing at the moment in New Zealand Um, and that will increase your working age population and that will start to naturally um, bring your unemployment rate higher probably. Um, The other piece is just around the demand side. So as the economy slows, employers will naturally probably need less people. Um, You know, everything's been going... Particularly in the construction industry, for example, Um, residential construction has been going incredibly strongly for the last few years on rising house prices and strong demand. Um, We're now really starting to see that pullback and the expectation is that the residential construction, even though consensus is still really high, I think you're going to start seeing a pullback in terms of the actual activity delivered over the next few years. So um, perhaps not quite as strong demand for builders, for example. And then probably the other piece is just thinking around um, whether we actually start to see some substitution away from labor and towards more capital investment. So when I say that, I mean, you know, throwing people at increased business demand is one way of solving the problem, but possibly investing in capital machinery that could also help your firm produce goods might be an alternative. And with a particularly tight labor market at the moment, that and wage prices or wage wages going up quite rapidly, that might be an alternative that some firms look at and that might actually start to alleviate some of the demand
3: pressure. And that helps a lot with productivity and things, doesn't it, as well? Yeah, exactly. Of... Yeah. One, one interesting part that I was sort of looking at within the labour statistics is, and again, hasten to add, this is your domain, so correct me if I'm wrong, but participation rate went up and that in general terms can be a really good thing, but actually it was participation from really young people um, and it, it, are we getting some unintended consequences of people going out into the workforce perhaps early because the, because of the cost of living? Um, and actually, it's it might have some consequences down the road with um, with different parts of the economy when when participation rate increases or people just getting second jobs, as well as the fact that you know younger people um, perhaps leaving school or leaving. Um, you know not going to uni or, or what have you and go getting a job is, is that anything that you've looked into um over the yeah, course of what's I, been happening i
2: saw the data as well it's, it's quite interesting and obviously you can't tell what the driver is from just seeing the numbers unfortunately and it's, it's hard to tell if it is people you know family pressure and cost of living is going up we need you my 16 year old to go out and get a job to help support family or whether it's um actually partly you know people are just being attracted to the labor force by relatively high because wages, just wages are high, yeah. demand, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, you look at, particularly in the hospitality industry, there's a real lack of staff. So I think possibly what you've seen is a substitution away from international visitors and tourists coming in and working for a year or so in the hospital sector to younger people in New Zealand being drawn into that industry because there's just really strong demand and we can't find people. Um, one of the interesting things, actually, in the participation stats was also looking at more older people staying in the workforce as well. Um, and female workforce participations hit a record high, which is really interesting to so see and quite cool. So I it's think the golden just...
1: age for school leavers, really, isn't it? Um, is that? It's the golden oh, age no. for school leavers. <laughs> I mean, I, shortly after I, I guess, um, went into the workforce, the the GFC kicked in, and suddenly, um, I definitely didn't feel like that for my peers at the time. Uh, well, when I worked at calls for $6.90 an hour, I thought
3: that I <laughs> <well, laughs> inflation has kind of changed that. For those people leaving school and getting summer jobs, it's must be pretty attractive. Yeah,
2: all yeah. of those bases. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good time to be looking for a job, really, in this tight labour market.
3: Which I guess is a, a good thing, but also a bad thing when it comes to inflation expectations and interest rates and therefore the, the, the follow-on effects on, on mortgage rates, etc., that's...
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, a tight labor market does mean that, you know, if you're wanting to attract workers, you're having to offer offer increased salaries and that kind of becomes embedded in your prices as well. And so, that you know, everyone's talking about the wage price spiral at the moment and um, sort of alluded to this before, whereby, you know, your expectations start to push prices up, which starts to push wages up, which puts, pushes more pressure on prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a pretty nasty place to be. So, as I say, the Reserve Bank will be really cautious about wanting to get on top of that and make sure that they, they rein in expectations going forward and that actually people are genuinely looking at inflation getting back towards 2% over the longer term. So, um,
3: Sorry, I, to- I totally interrupt your train of thought, but I, I'm going to ask a challenge question then. So, it, it sounds like really low unemployment, um, a wage, I'm not saying we're in a wage spiral yet, but, you know, there's the concerns about that. Um, and we have um, inflation expectations still for two years out, still stubbornly high. How how do we get a soft landing in, in that context? Because um, you either keep hiking rates and all of a sudden you've done it too much and you're sitting there and all of a sudden unemployment spikes because employees, employers can't afford to hire people or housing market goes down and, cons- I don't know, consumer spending, you know, the implications yeah. and the follow-on effects is... Um, where economics sort of loses me a bit but uh, um how in your model have you got a soft landing when things seem pretty pretty tough out not tough now but can be pretty tough in order to control it
2: yeah i think so when we look ahead we think about where growth is going to go we're talking about you know gdp growth averaging around two percent year on year over the next few years That's relatively low compared to where your kind of natural GDP rate would be. And that means that we will be operating with more spare capacity in our economy. So as that demand pulls back in response to higher interest rates, um, that will open up capacity. It will mean that your unemployment rate is probably going to increase because of that lower demand coming through. Um, But that also means that inflation pressure will come off. And that's what the Reserve Bank's really trying to get to. Um, Doing just the right amount of monetary policy to get that outcome, is quite tricky, yeah. um, but it does, I think um, An that... understatement of the century. <laughs> <laughs> this goes to my point earlier about, I think, you know, by the time we get to February next year, the Reserve Bank is going to be much more cautious about how far it needs to hike rates um, in order to get inflation right. down because I think that really will be having a, an impact on people's behaviours by that point. Um, that's why we've got 4.75 as our OCR peak um, and other people have it a lot higher. So, you know, I, I think the market consensus is somewhere around 5 or slightly higher than that um in terms of how far the ocr needs to go i think you're already starting to see the signs of um the negative impact that that's having the other piece we haven't talked about yet is housing of course um and you know the fact that house prices falling you're getting quite a strong negative wealth effect coming through for people so if my house has gone down 20 20 on paper i'm feeling less wealthy than i did when it was going up by 20 percent year on year on paper right um And that has a particularly for New Zealanders who have a lot of wealth tied up in the housing market and you look at some of the household wealth stats um, from stats NZ as well you know our house our actual household wealth has been declining over the last few quarters partly because of the negative impact of what's been happening in share markets but largely because of what's been happening in the value of housing so I'm feeling less wealthy than I did a year ago. I'm less likely to go out and spend on big-ticket items, um, and that is a natural flow in effect in terms of pulling back general demand and general consumer spending in the economy.
3: That's fascinating. So both those things reduces demand and demand, uh, or demand and, and GDP, which automatically puts capacity back into the into the market by um, by design, and so then you get that sort of bit more leeway around wage expectations, etc. Et even yeah. though GDP is still positive
2: yeah exactly i mean i think you know when you think about an economy operating above capacity um so if i'm getting i'm a business producing widgets i'm selling seeing really strong demand for those goods i'm much more comfortable putting my prices up because i'm almost can't keep up with demand right so i'm like well i can make more money by putting my costs up my prices up but also probably my costs are going up because i'm having to um pay more or an extra capacity (laughs) pay extra people to help meet that demand right um, but whereas when demand is below my capacity, I'm much less likely to put prices up, right? Because I'm producing more goods than people are prepared to pay for at that point. So if anything, I might even put my prices down. Unlikely, prices tend to be sticky and that they don't tend to fall, but...
3: Was it bowling ball ball bearings and feathers or whatever the <laughs> case is that, they, you know, the prices go... I forget what the terminology, it was, it was, a it was an economic, I'm, I'm starting to really scrape the bottom <laughs> of the barrel of my, uh, economic, um, um, metaphors, but, but prices at least stable stops inflation because okay. not, but yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's, um, when you're sitting at, uh, OCR of 375 and thinking the market's thinking 525 as, uh, as, as its peak, yet, um, yet you're seeing what's going on out on the street on in, in mortgage rates, et cetera, already. I, I sort of agree, it's a kind of, surely you're starting to get a decrease in demand at that point.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, when you look at the, mi- as I said, when you look at the mix of consumer spending and certainly where we expect people to be spending over the next sort of 12, 24 months, I think that mix is gonna be much more consumer basics, consumer staples discretionary items go out the window. One thing that's been interesting post-COVID actually has been the shift though, in terms of people spending, you know, for example, particularly when lockdown finished, right, everyone was going out to, out to dinner, um, going out eating and drinking. Um, you've seen a shift more recently as lots of events have started to happen. So, you know, lots more concerts, gigs, um, people going to sort of film festivals, all of those sort of tickets, um, ticket sales have been really going up quite rapidly. So people are actually spending, um, that shift in spending has moved away from uh, consumer goods and particularly, you know, perhaps um, large ticket items towards more experience-based. Um, yeah, and so that's going to be interesting to see whether that holds up as kind of the mortgage rate increases really start to bite on consumer spending as well. Um, the other positive impact, though, for New Zealand economies, we have seen tourism come back over the last six months. So that's, you know, it's not a huge wave as yet, but it is really starting to come through, um, particularly in some of the data, the so tourist arrivals with, you know, consumption of cruise ships and coming through. Um, big boost to local economies from that as well, which is a piece of our economy that's been missing for the last two years. And we've actually managed to survive despite that being missing, um, partly because New Zealanders can travel overseas as well. So that 10k, 5 to 10k you might have spent on an overseas holiday is being you spent on the spa pool.
3: i that. <laughs> yeah, spent on spa pools apparently. Yes. COVID, yeah, yeah, that was another big one. Yeah, and
2: health yeah health that, health
3: the, So, when we think about tourism, um, um, does that what, what, what uh, another interesting stat that I read? I think it was during COVID was the the percentage of the workforce that is um, backpacking holiday visas. Um, you know, people come here uh, under age under thirty. Um, workers that come on the two-year holiday visa um, and, and I guess increasing in tourism does perhaps help with that because you come over here for a holiday and go actually it's quite nice here I might stay if you're under 30 I might stay a little while and, and get a job in a bar or in, in, in a restaurant or whatever to so I can afford to live here for a bit is, is that the way that you look at the immigration vis-a-vis tourism or are they quite separate
2: uh, no, there certainly is a little bit of that. Um, I think what's going to be really interesting is what comes out of the, um, sorry, Envy's consultation around immigration settings at the moment. Um, I think what we saw was, you know, prior to COVID, there was a lot of discussion around over-tourism and really high immigration. Um, those obviously both got completely switched off during COVID, and it was kind of a bit of an opportunity for us to think and reset how we want to approach that going forward. Um, what's becoming apparent at the moment is that we are screaming for labour, and probably some of that is what we're going to need to import from overseas. So I think if you talk to any business, their number one concern at the moment is labour shortages yep. and staffing. So we can't instantly conjure a pool of more workers from New Zealand. So we need to think about what our immigration settings are going forward and making sure that they're the right areas we're growing in, meeting demand and helping local business through that. Um, I think, you know, the tourism does help to some extent around, certainly it's almost a marketing exercise as well, right? If you come over to New Zealand on a holiday and you see how beautiful it is, you might go home and then go, actually, I want to shift my whole family over and look at how you might do that over the next few years, and it's not an instant thing. But there are the, also the backpackers who stay on and get hospital jobs, et cetera. Um, but the migration, immigration settings and the visa requirements around that are getting tighter, I would say,
1: probably. Every time I turn on the radio, I hear um, advertising for Western Australia and to go and become a tourist worker or a hospital worker over there. So it's a competitive market for, um, for those people and, and even for Kiwis, you know, Australia's a tempting place.
2: Yeah, It really is. And Australia has actually done quite a proactive job of turning the tap back on in terms of, um, inbound workers. They're facing the same labor shortage as we are, I think, largely, but, um, they've quickly turned their immigration around. So you can really start to see the worker and the student visas coming through quite rapidly in Australia. We haven't quite seen the same level of pick up here, but I do expect it to come. Um,
1: well, it might play into the dovish stance you were mentioning earlier. Um, uh, this is all kind of, in a way, can be, it lens to look at it as through the, the dual mandate that the Reserve Bank has and um, And would you mind just, I guess, for for listeners talking through what that means and then um, sharing if you have any views on whether that is actually, you know, the right thing? It's obviously garnered a fair amount of constant, uh, what would be the word, um, controversy over recent months.
2: Yeah, sure. So when we say dual mandate for the Reserve Bank, um, what it used to be was that the Reserve Bank was solely charged with um, keeping inflation between 1% and 3% and ideally around 2%. That sort of shifted actually quite incrementally over years where, you know, then it was a financial stability mandate as well. There was talk about, you know, not, um, I can't remember the exact terminology off the top of my head, but, you know, around asset prices and having consideration for what monetary policy and how that impacts the housing market or asset prices more generally. Um, and then we had the addition in the last uh, Reserve Bank Act of um, a dual mandate around trying to keep the labour market Not too hot and not too cold is probably the easiest way of putting it. But what it essentially means is they look at a suite of labour market indicators, but probably from an unemployment rate point of view, as I mentioned, around four to four and a half percent is around that not too hot, not too cold point of view. So typically, hopefully inflation and the labour market do tend to act sort of hand in hand instead. Um, We haven't actually really encountered a, a point where those two things have been in sort of contradiction with each other as yet so if you think about it, at the moment we've got really high inflation and really low unemployment really tight labour market so your natural response to either of those things would be to raise your OCR and that's what we've got happening at the moment um, it does it does mean the reserve bank's got to keep in mind a wider range of factors and when it's looking at monetary policy and where things are going and heading in the future I think when you think about the labour market it was always implicitly in there. Um, considerations about where inflation was going because that was a big driver um, but it's just made it really more explicit and it's quite a common thing so the fed has a similar mandate the reserve bank of australia um, have a dual mandate as well so it's not it's not hugely controversial in terms of the way it should operate um, if it does get to the point where those two things are at, at quite an um, opposing angles then it'll become a bit more interesting. Um, I think probably from a general public point of view, though, there's probably less understanding around what that unemployment or the employment labor market mandate means. Um, So people kind of get inflation. So CPI between one and 3%, ideally at two, that's what the Reserve Bank's aiming for, but there's no kind of one number on the employment side. Um, As I say, it is a suite of kind of how tight or how loose the labor market is, and the Reserve Bank do publish a a range of those indicators, but, If I ask the layperson on the street, what does a reserve bank have to do with employment? Um, I think probably most people would say the lower the unemployment rate is, the better, Um, which is not actually what their mandate is, unfortunately, Um, which does create tension um, from a political point of view, as you can have seen in the media recently, right, is um, no one wants to think about an unemployment rate going higher. But unfortunately, that might be the end result of the fact that we have a really tight labor market at the moment and, we need to um,
1: get inflation back under control. Yeah, the, the government's books are looking pretty good at the moment from most people's accounts. And, um, and at the same time, you've got obviously inflationary pressures across the board, but spending is set to continue and there's a bunch of initiatives underway that they're, they're looking at. How do you think about government spending during times like this? And... What happens when you, you, know, uh, you know it's going to inflame or um, add fuel to the fire, potentially, uh, with some of the initiatives? Or Just um, ask um, Elizabeth Truss, <laughs> for example. <laughs> for example, uh, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, some of them are, you know, really important projects: transport, you know, the transition to cleaner energy sources, um, obviously investment in education, those types of infrastructural spends. How do yeah. you how do you think about it?
2: Yeah, sure. And I might go back a step to kind of what happened during COVID. Um, so obviously you saw a huge amount of monetary policy support and fiscal policy support, right? So from the government side, you know, particularly the wage the wage program, um, that pumped a bunch of cash into the economy, a bunch of money. Um, and, you know, I think given, and there's obviously a lot of um, speculation around this at the moment, but given where things looked in terms of how the economy could have fared through COVID, um, that was probably the right policy to roll out given the information that they had at the time. So huge amount of stimulus into the economy. Um, What you're seeing now is that largely most of those government programs have rolled off. The last one being the transport subsidies that kick off, I think, um, come off in January. Um, And that's pretty much the end of kind of the emergency support policy settings that we had in place through COVID. Then it's much more moving back into a BAU operating environment. Um, And I think New Zealand's facing quite a large scale infrastructure deficit. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, And part of this goes back to that migration story as well, is that we had a huge population influx and we weren't really planning or accommodating that in our infrastructure planning um, at that point. And immigration, you know, can be very uh, volatile and we've seen that historically, but um, given where things got to in terms of the net additions of people, our population was growing at above 2% year on year, largely due to immigration. we hadn't quite planned for that. And so they're now sort of catching up on that infrastructure deficit and there's a lot of work that needs to be done and a huge number of projects still ongoing. Um, and so I think from that point of view, that's a good thing to be honest, because actually, hopefully government can help smooth through some of those demand shocks um, that we might see over the year ahead because they've got a strong pipeline of civil construction that's going to go on um, for the next 24 three, 36 months plus some. Um, And what we've seen typically is these projects end up taking longer to actually get on board. I mean, a really good example is the Canterbury earthquake and the profile that was expected in terms of the rebuild versus what was actually delivered. Um, I think we're looking at, you know, kind of a long drawn out investment pipeline from the government in terms of infrastructure, which actually provides quite a nice backbone of government spending to some extent um, if we are going to face a downturn next year and certainly as things come off from the private sector. Um, What we did see through COVID perhaps was some crowding out of um, government versus private investment is that, you know, we had a huge construction boom, everyone was clamouring for the same resources, no one could get materials, no one could get labour. And so that was quite a tricky environment. But as you start to see that sort of private sector construction pull back, um, you've got that government pipeline of infrastructure still coming through, which is quite positive. I guess the other bit is that, um, you know, the government spent up quite large through COVID um, and their policy was always to try and get back um, to a more balanced budget following that. Um, what you've seen in terms of tax takes and things like that is they've actually um, are running ahead of where they thought they'd be at this point in time. But if we are going to face another nasty external shock, for example, it's quite a good place to be is re-getting those buffers back up. So if they needed to roll out more um, government support in the future, they've got the buffer to do so without having to borrow
3: as well. And when you spend infrastructure Zoe it's not that's not part of your budget surplus or deficit is it it's capital spending and so you can still have your tax taken your day-to-day government spending and have a surplus and pay down debt at the same time be spending capital expenditure on infrastructure and yeah well you
2: know they've already allocated the capital expenditure budgets right so that's not going to change um and I expect that in the next main budget they will be adjusted um it's typically how it works but yeah
3: because I, I guess there's a there's sort of a putting politics aside. There's always a um, an argument in New Zealand that we have um, a lot of government spending on both sides, both both um, sides of the divide in the political spectrum. But actually, we've been a pretty disciplined country in in, in having um, surpluses, other than a little bit during the GFC and obviously COVID. That actually budget services have been sort of the main course of events for New Zealand compared to say the UK which is going to be in budget deficit forever it seems austerity forever um, but still can't get their um, books into into surplus is is that a fair enough sort of summary of 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 the landscape of on surplus versus deficit and and government spending
2: yeah I think when you think about the post-GFC period we certainly had quite a a reasonably responsible fiscal debt-to-GDP ratio. We've never really got to the level that we saw a lot of other countries did in terms of government support um, post-financial crisis. Um, And then that was brought back over time into a more sort of balanced budget. Um, We sort of got back into, you know, around the 20% debt-to-GDP, sorry, um, debt-to-GDP ratio, which everyone talks about, and they've just changed the focus on that. But um, I think generally we've probably been more fiscally responsible throughout the last sort of, you know, what is it, 10, 15 years almost um, than some other countries have, have been. And our economies have held up really relatively well as well. Like when you look at actually our growth outlook, that feeds into the government tax tape, obviously. Um, so the fact that we've never, you know, we haven't really had a huge major recession since the GFC. Um, and even then it was relatively short-lived and we kind of bounced back out um, within a reasonable period. Whereas other countries, you know, particularly Europe, um, depending on where you look, has had quite a long troubled decade. Um, The UK is obviously facing a lot of structural problems, um, yeah, in in political environment as well. Um, And so I think, yeah, we are relatively lucky in that we have wiggle room to respond. And that was what we saw in COVID is that we had, we're in a relatively good starting position from the government books perspective to then provide that additional support that meant that we didn't really experience a serious negative recession or a long lasting one in New Zealand. Um, And so by getting our books back into black again, gives
1: us that opportunity and that buffer if we need it. All right. Um, You mentioned, obviously, you're really interested in the macro piece, and there's a lot of big global macro events underway. Uh, What are the, the maybe the top three that are sort of on your mind that you focus on at the moment? When, when you go to the New York Times, what, what part of it do you look at? <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, the obvious one is everyone's watching really closely to see what inflation numbers do globally. it um, been really interesting over the last, you know, sort of month in the US just to see some of that price pressure starting to come back. So their inflation numbers, both CPI and producer price index, so what, what consumers pay and what producers pay, so it's inputs to production are starting to pull back, and that's... Um, quite a positive sign for the US and, you know, everyone's now expecting that the Fed might have to, the US Federal Reserve, the central bank equivalent, might have to raise interest rates by less than they had previously anticipated, um, which is quite an interesting flow and effect for New Zealand and the New Zealand dollar, obviously, as well, because that was something that was probably causing us a bit of concern about a month ago. You'd you'd had quite a nasty fallback in the New Zealand dollar and what that typically means for us is that actually the cost of imported goods goes up and that's a negative thing for inflation. It can be really positive for our exporting sector and that your New Zealand dollar revenues increase but um, from a pure sort of inflation outlook um, on the tradable side that can be quite negative because it means that you're having to pay more for imported goods and that adds to your inflation story. Um, So the fact that the US is now sort of perhaps pulling back and things it looks like their inflation numbers are starting to come back um, hopefully is also a positive foreshadowing of what might happen in New Zealand. Um, in response to interest rate hikes, but also means that some of that pressure on the Kiwi US dollar has been alleviated as well. Uh, UK is a different story. So I saw the headline inflation this week hit 11.1%. That's pretty nasty. A huge amount of that has been driven by energy and food prices and particularly energy. Um, And so with the war in Ukraine, um, that's really causing a huge issue around energy prices in Europe at the moment. I think, one of the interesting things just from a longer term trends point of view will be in response to what we've said over the last couple of years, whether people start onshoring production of energy and food in particular, and probably tech, which you see happen in the US as well. Um, so the sort of de-glo- like deglobalization trend really coming through and people, you know, d- doing trade theory and at university, and I haven't done probably much since. But, you think about comparative advantage and people specializing in what they're good at producing. And that was kind of how the world economy was built. And everyone was just importing goods from comparative better producers. So lots of, you know, imported goods from China because they were better at manufacturing than a lot of other countries were and could do so at a relatively um, attractive price point. Um, you're now starting to see some of that reversed, I think, as people get much more cautious about being reliant on offshore countries for production, particularly of kind of acute, you know, um, really demand high-demand goods, so energy and food being two of them. I think so, that's
3: so fascinating, Zoe, because, yeah. look, I'm a massive green energy advocate, so just for the record, before my next comment, but <laughs> but but, <laughs> but the the stopping of exploration of, say, natural gas in, in New Zealand is an interesting one because the reason our energy prices aren't high in New Zealand is because we, at the moment, have our own gas, don't need to import it, but, but we've stopped exploring for it, and so we, we do become more part of the global market over time. And that's, that's an interesting decision for any government to make on on the, you know, you're, you're in Wellington, you you probably see this every day, but you know, the, the way up between um, making inroads into climate change at the same time as security of supply of energy is, I mean, in the end, if people's energy prices go up, what is it 90%, my mum who lives in the UK was saying, um, from April, I mean, that is, that is tough on, Mm. on the consumer no matter how much you want the climate change um, to um, be sort of dealt with. And the winters are cold.
2: Yes.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, look, I think that's a really interesting point, James. And I think, like, you know, over the last few years, as economies have been performing well, even through COVID, um, you've seen that really focus on greening of energy supplies and, you know, greening of economies generally. What I worry about from that point of view is when the going gets tough and, you know, people in Europe and the UK are going to be facing a recession probably. Um, Whether those agendas start to be sidelined, because actually I'm just trying to heat my house and I can't afford to pay three times what I used to. And so that becomes a, um, that sees sort of the green energy push really sidelined, perhaps in sort of at least hopefully only in the short term. But I think that's a really big risk is that everyone falls back to what's cheap and available. Rather
3: than than paying a premium, and then people do what's sort of the immediate relief for their families, rather than necessarily the longer term effects when it, when put, when the stress comes on.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, that short yeah. short termism starts to yeah. come, through,
1: unfortunately. Yeah, I think fantastic. That. And are there any other? I mean, obviously, so you've got inflation, you've got um, uh, obviously you mentioned the UK. Are there any other sort of trends that you're keeping an eye on that are you know you're excited about or keep you up at night?
2: I think the big other one, obviously for New Zealand, is what happens in China. Um, So, you know, they're still one of our major export destinations. They also have a big impact on what happens in Australia. Um, And some of the politics are getting interesting, and I won't won't go into that in too much depth. It's not probably... I I do wish I'd started studying a politics degree instead of just pure economics. Uh, I think it'd be quite useful sometimes. It feels like you need a degree in geopolitics to be an economist these days. and but an investor, don't, know,
3: don't worry. What's that? <laughs> and an investor as well.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, very true. Um, I think, you know, you look at the Chinese growth outlook at the moment and they've obviously taken a really hard line stance on shutting things down in response to COVID. Um, you look at their property market and that's got some pretty nasty flow-on effects for consumer spending um, and investment more generally. I do think New Zealand, you know, I've been saying this for a while, has a comparative advantage perhaps to Australia and that we're less subject to kind of the boom bust of their, you know, investment programs and, um, from that point of view, we do have a relative advantage, but then you have seen um, more Chinese onshoring of things like you know, milk powder, for example, and less reliance on New Zealand. We've handled that relatively well to date by diversifying away um, or into other areas such as Southeast Asia, which has been really great to see. Um, so I think everyone's aware that we've got quite a strong reliance on China and is cautious about putting all their eggs in one basket. Um, but obviously what happens with the Chinese economy and demand over the next few years is going to be quite interesting to see for us.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, Zoe, thank you so much um, for joining us. It's really great to get your insights and thoughts and, um, and views on where the world's going and what we're facing in New Zealand. Great, thanks
2: you very much, guys.
3: Thanks, Zoe. It's, it's been really cool to discuss all this. Thanks for your um, expert insights.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great to chat.
0: This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.